0: Hello, welcome to Oncology Times broadcast news with the Audio Journal of Oncology. I'm Peter Goodwin with more interviews from the American Society of Haematology annual meeting in San Francisco. Our scientific editor is George Canellos. We start with allogeneic transplantation and relief in sight from the shortage of donor stem cells. Umbilical cord blood could be more widely used for adult patients. That's judging from findings of a new study comparing the outcomes of cord blood transplants with those from marrow or peripheral blood sources. Mary Eapon told me why her group was so interested in using cord blood.
1: Over the last 20 years, cord blood has emerged as an alternative unrelated to an source. It first emerged in children because you can only collect so many cells. And it's much easier to transplant children using the minimum criteria required to get the cord blood cells to grow in the patient. So if you look at current numbers about 40 to 45% of children who receive unrelated donor transplants receive a cord blood graft. The number of adult transplants using umbilical cord blood have increased, but it still constitutes only about
0: 5%. What did you do in this study that you're now reporting?
1: We actually compared the results of Matched unrelated donor transplant with cord blood, given most of the cord blood grafts are mismatched, and we looked at overall survival.
0: Is this something that has not already been done?
1: It's been done in pediatrics. The most recent publication was in 2007 in The Lancet. The adult study was first done and published in 2004. There were two reports in the New England Journal of Medicine, one from North America and one from... The european group the north american group showed that matched marrow and at the time the definition of matched marrow was less strict you looked at three points you looked at a b and dr and the level of typing was also inferior to the typing that's used nowadays so this study was done to reflect current practices so the year of transplantations were limited to 2002 to 2006 We use allele-level typing now as opposed to lower-level typing for selecting a mud.
0: Are you saying, then, that perhaps we had a, a, a less positive attitude towards cord blood because the system of assessing it perhaps wasn't as sophisticated as now?
1: That's part of the reason, and the other reason is expertise. Not everybody jumped on the bandwagon when cord blood first came around. And that's just the way medicine is. It takes time. A few people work on something. If they're successful at it, it's applied to a wider group of physicians.
0: So, in other words, what you have now is a data set that could probably really mean something. So I want to know what you did in the study and what you found, indeed.
1: What we did was we compared the three graft sources, peripheral blood, bone marrow, and umbilical cord blood, as a graft source for transplanting adults with leukemia. And the leukemia that we focused on was acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, two of the common indications for transplantation.
0: And what did you find?
1: Your survival rate was best if you received a matched unrelated donor, bone marrow, or peripheral blood graft. However, if you look at the probability of finding such a donor, it's about 50% for Caucasians, and very low for African-Americans, it's 17%.
0: When you said the survival rates were best with the matched unrelated donor, by what margin?
1: A slim margin is what I would say. The p-values were between 0.01 and 0.05. So when you consider multiple comparisons, that's suggestive, not confirmatory. But what's important to remember is The cord blood patients have a problem getting the graft in, so they are more likely to die of a transplant-related complication early on. So the treatment-related or the transplant-related mortality per se, most of which occur within the first year is much higher in the cord blood group, and that has a really significant p-value of less than 0.001. But if you get past that point, then they do well. So in
0: other words, you've got pretty good results for cord blood. What are the recommendations coming out of this then?
1: The recommendations are, if you have an 8 of 8 donor and you have the luxury of waiting two and a half to three months to work that donor up, by all means, transplant using marrow or peripheral blood because you cannot decide who's going to survive the initial period and who's not. However, if you don't have the luxury of waiting or you don't have a mud, go ahead and do a cobbler transplant, don't wait.
0: Mary Epen from the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Well, chairing the news briefing at which she presented her new data was Armand Keating from the University of Toronto. So I asked him for his take on the evidence.
2: I think this is an important and interesting observation and I think it's providing additional impetus for the increased use of cord blood transplantation. I think that in the past there were concerns about delays in hematologic recovery and possibly toxicity due to delayed immune recovery. But it is increasingly appearing that the outcomes of mismatched cord blood are similar to those of closely matched unrelated either marrow or peripheral blood grafts.
0: We seem to have some very hard data here that's been meticulously prepared. So what do you think doctors should glean
2: from this? I think that the message that I would take away from these studies is that cord blood transplantation should be a serious consideration and should be considered particularly for patients who belong to minorities where standard registries perhaps are not as representative.
0: Armand Keating. And there was more encouraging news about transplanting with umbilical cord blood. Colleen Delaney told the Ash Conference about her group's success in early human studies using ex vivo expansion of stem cells. They've been harnessing the so-called notch ligand to increase the numbers of CD34 progenitor cells. I asked her why they decided to do this.
3: The biggest deficiency in cord blood transplant is the lack of available numbers of stem cells and other cells for transplantation. And this results in significant delays in neutrophil and platelet recovery post-transplant for these patients, causing increased transplant-related mortality primarily due to infections.
0: Could you summarize for me, what is this notch system that you are harnessing in order to do the ex vivo expansion? How does it work?
3: Right, the stem cell, uh, holy grail, huh? The notch system that we are utilizing, notch has been implicated in hematopoiesis everywhere from long-term repopulating cells all the way up through uh, lymphoid cell fate. And this is work that was originally done in Irv Bernstein's lab, where I started as a fellow. And so from that work, we were able to show, first in the murine system, that if you manipulated the notch signaling pathway in primary stem cells, this resulted in multi-log increases in a stem cell population that translated in vivo in transplants, in murine transplants. From there, we sort of knew that in order to really harness this system for therapeutic benefit and to see if we could achieve the holy grail of stem cell biology, uh, we wanted to look at whether we could activate endogenous Notch signaling, so harness the cell's own signaling by placing them on a ligand, which would then turn on the signaling in the recipient stem cell. So with that goal, we engineered Notch ligands in the lab. They are generated clinical grade now for this trial. And when we place cord blood 34 positive cells on this ligand, this protein, we can activate endogenous notch signaling resulting in expansion of the stem cell population.
0: What then did you do with the patients that you've been looking at?
3: So this trial is a double unit cord blood transplant trial based on uh, the double unit platform as developed by Minnesota. So these patients are patients with hematologic malignancies, so acute leukemias, and they are open, it's open to pediatric and adult transplant patients. However, of the 10 patients treated to date, only two have been in the pediatric population. So these patients come to us, we identify two units of cord blood, On day minus 16, we thaw the unit destined for expansion. We isolate the 34 positive stem cell population, and by virtue of doing that, we get rid of the T cells. Those stem cells are placed into culture for 16 days, and on average, we've seen a 165-fold increase in the number of stem cells then available for transplant for those patients, ranging from 41-fold all the way up to 470-fold. During that time, the patient undergoes a myeloablative preparative regimen consisting of TBI, cytoxin, and fludarabine. On day zero, they receive their unmanipulated unit first, which is immune-competent, meaning it has its T cells there. We anticipated that this unit would be the long-term engrafting unit. Four hours later, they receive their expanded cells. The goal of this trial was to provide cells capable of rapid myeloid recovery in this patient population to bridge that period of neutropenia. It was not intended to be a long-term repopulating cell. So in translation of our expansion, we were able to provide significant increases in the stem cell dose ranging from 1 million to 13 million stem cells per kilo, CD34 positive cells per kilo for the patients from that single unit of cord blood. Now, this is remarkable because, in general, we like to achieve 150000 per kilo.
0: Right. Let me get this straight. You gave two units because you needed a backup of an ordinary cord blood transplant in order to guarantee the patient's standard care. But on top of that, you had an expanded unit, and you're now reporting that that, in fact, did extremely well, expanded a long way and lasted a long time.
3: That is correct. So we give the unmanipulated unit because we really had little evidence that we had a true long-term repopulating stem cell. So this is why it's the holy grail. When you place stem cells into culture, generally speaking, you have stem cell exhaustion. So the trial was designed for safety in mind. The unmanipulated unit has the stem cell population in it. To provide long-term engraftment. What we have seen in two patients is that there has been significant persistence of in vivo engraftment from our expanded cells suggesting that we do retain long-term repopulating ability.
0: When you say significant persistence how long what does that mean?
3: In one patient it lasted up to 300 days and in this current patient we have now uh, she's six months post-transplant literally a couple days ago and when we rechecked her donor engraftment she is still a complete 50-50 chimera.
0: So how close are you to the Holy Grail?
3: Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think there is so much that still needs to be worked out in terms of typing and what's required and can we give this unit as a single unit. Right now we take away the T cells, so we'd have to work on immune reconstitution from these cells. Um, There are so many potential avenues to explore.
0: And the implications of the removal of the T cells is what?
3: Well, in this setting, the implication is that we believe even if we have long-term engrafting cells, that it is unlikely we will see them because we give this T-depleted expanded graft so it has no real immune system associated with it in the presence of a fully competent immune graft. So, our anticipation is that even if there are long-term repopulating cells, that they may be rejected by the unmanipulated unit once it takes hold. Now, so that begs the question though, what about the one who's six months out and is complete mixed chimera? And you know, I don't have a great explanation for that except that The two units we used for this patient were very highly mismatched at A, B, C, and DR. But this expansion was one of those amazing expansions. She had a 400-fold expansion of her CD34 cell population, giving her a dose of 10 million per kilo. And I think in this instance, that very large cell dose overcame immediate rejection and actually induced tolerance
0: so is this one small step for mankind or can doctors look forward perhaps quite soon to using ex vivo expansion especially for cord blood which seems to need it so much
3: Well, I think it's somewhere in the middle, to be honest. I do think we are very close to being able to provide this technology uh, to a more widespread population. And I think one of the keys there is going to be making this less technologically difficult. So, uh, for instance, maybe being able to start with a fresh unit and freeze the expanded product so that it's available for everyone.
0: Colleen Delaney from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. After talking with her, I turned again to Armand Keating. I wondered how hopeful he was based on what we'd just been hearing. I'm very excited
2: about this. I think that ex vivo expansion of stem cells, of course, is the holy grail. And I think that once this is established and becomes routine, it will transform the way we perform transplants. And I think the dichotomy that currently exists between public blood banks and private ones could be overcome because what one would be able to do under those circumstances is to have aliquots of the graft such that one aliquot could be used for public purposes and the other could be used privately. There I believe still needs to be quite a bit to be done but these data while preliminary look very exciting.
0: The engraftment seemed
2: to be quite prolonged as well didn't it? In five out of the six patients, it it looked like uh, the engraftment was quite a bit faster. Of course, in a phase one study, uh, it's not really considered ethical to use the cultured cells alone, and that's why this combination of uncultured plus cultured really needs to be done. uh, Once the safety of this has been uh, demonstrated and uh, the efficacy of, of that engraftment has been demonstrated, The next step will be to show that this is durable, that those engrafted cells are durable. And I think one of the particularly attractive features of Dr. Delaney's study is that she's been able to track the cultured cells. And I think that's extremely useful because it will tell us something about the persistence of that engrafted population.
0: And for doctors, do you think uh, there may be a message that um, ex vivo expansion may soon be ready for prime time? I think it may still be
2: a while before that happens and I think careful phase two studies are going to have to be performed before we can really be definitive about this. But this has been long in coming and I think many centres and many laboratories have been focusing on this and this I think is an important step.
0: Armin Keating from the University of Toronto. Erythropoiesis stimulating agents were under the microscope at ASH with a report from the biggest study yet aimed at assessing whether they carry risks for cancer patients. It was a powerful meta-analysis done by a multinational team in Europe, combining data from 53 individual randomized studies and a total of nearly 14,000 patients. When I talked with the presenting author, Julia Bolius, I asked her first how they made sure their study was unbiased.
4: To get this issue as unbiased as possible, it is very important to predefine all inclusion criteria, endpoints and statistical analyses to be done. All of those were written down in a protocol. This protocol was peer-reviewed both by the steering committee as well as external peer reviewers, as well as methodologists of the Cochrane Hematological Malignancies Group and published in the Cochrane Library. In addition, we developed a predefined statistical analysis plan and followed this plan. The other important issue here is to get a pharmacy independent steering committee and funding that is independent from the pharmaceutical companies.
0: Tell me then, what did you do in the study?
4: In the study we evaluated the effects of ESA versus control in cancer patients based on the individual patient data from randomised control trials.
0: And what were your overall findings?
4: The overall finding was that if you look at all cancer patients the risk to die is increased by factor 1.17 in patients receiving ESAs compared to controls. If you look at the chemotherapy trials only, the risk is increased by factor 1.10 and does not reach conventional levels of statistical significance and the confidence interval goes from 0.98 to 1.24.
0: Those statistics were for the risk of dying while the individual study was still in progress, on-study mortality. And Dr Boli has told us that overall survival worsened by 6%, which was statistically significant, though when you took patients whose main treatment was chemotherapy, that's two-thirds of all patients, the increase in overall mortality didn't reach significance. I asked her what she thought cancer doctors need to be doing about these new data.
4: Well, we have to realize that the current license indication as recommended by the FDA is already quite restrictive. So at the moment the current license indication is only in patients with incurable condition with the HB at baseline below 10 and a target not above 12. So these were already quite restrictive and whether or not current practice needs to be changed has to be discussed both at FDA, at EMEA and at guideline committees. But what is also very, very important to realize is that we need to know the benefits of this drug as well and that it depends on the clinical and personal preferences and conditions of a specific patient whether he is willing to take a certain risk for the benefits that are also given with these drugs.
0: And your overall guess about the (laughs) risk-benefit equation at the moment, where would that lie if we can have some kind of guidance for clinicians? What do you think?
4: That still needs to be worked out. So we know that the um, Relative risk for transfusions is decreased, so the relative risk is 1.67, based on literature-based analyses and to put all these different aspects, the risk of transfusions, the side effects of transfusions, a potential benefit of quality of life and the potential detrimental effects of ESAs on survival, all this has to be put together to come up with a good risk-benefit equation.
0: That was Julia Bolius from the University of Bern in Switzerland, and she was talking on behalf of the Erythropoiesis Stimulating Agent's Individual Patient Data, that's EPOIPD, Meta-Analysis Collaborative Group. Her paper was presented at a news conference at ASH, where I asked the chairperson, Linda Burns, for her assessment.
5: This is one of the most uh, well-designed, detailed analysis to date. So uh, as Dr. Boz stated that the other analysis have been done from the published literature, they went beyond this. They have the data from the authors, from the investigators of all of these studies. So they have more detailed, more information. I see it as the best study out there to date. Is it um, finite? No, but it's given us a lot more clues
0: What do you think doctors should now be doing about these new data?
5: I would tell them that um, they should follow the guidelines that are there, that we will be convening another panel not only to look at this, but to also look at other pieces of information and to um, tell physicians to be aware of this, to be careful, follow the guidelines, and also share this information with their patients.
0: Linda Burns, Director of Hematology, Oncology and Transplantation at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Of course, this finding didn't come out of the blue. I asked George Canellos for his take on it. Well, I think cancer
6: doctors have already been well informed by all of the noise that has come from the use of uh, erythropoietic agents. Um, as the speaker mentions, um, the FDA has been a bit more restrictive about uh, the uh, use of erythropoietin in, let's say, non-neoplastic circumstances. They will go along with using it in in patients with a limited life expectancy. But um, one has to remember that cancer patients, especially solid tumor patients, have a higher predilection to develop clots. Um, And uh, sometimes on chemotherapy, it's even worse because of the damage that chemotherapy can do to the endothelium and the effect on, on clotting factors. And so if you throw in the propensity for uh, clot plus adding erythropoietin, which uh, increases the red cell mass and in some ways uh, may affect the coagulation process that, was, that we still don't understand, then there is a danger in using it. Um, I think that uh, it's appropriate to be cautious about using it. Uh, You could argue leaving the dialysis patients aside for the moment. You can argue that it's a treatment that is not crucial. You could always transfuse people if you really wanted to improve their red cell capacity very quickly. And so we treated patients before uh, erythropoietic factors were ever invented. And, And I think we did rather well with that. But now these agents are available, but they're going to be less available for uh, certain types of patients based on the FDA uh, recommendations. And the ASCO-ASH committee on this cautions that the use of these agents in patients with cancer who are not receiving, uh, since uh, the risk of thromboembolic risks exists in those patients. So they're being cautious already. And everyone is being cautious in in the use of these agents, with the exception of uh, fairly advanced and terminal cancer patients.
0: Does this mean that the use of erythropoiesis stimulating agents will go down, whether or not there may be benefit to be obtained?
6: Well, it has gone down, it has gone down probably by half uh, for already by in, the, in the last year or so. And um, once you create this uh, fear in the minds of physicians then they're going to be thinking twice before they use uh, these agents
0: in patients. George Canellos from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. There was a thrilling session at ASH on chronic myeloid leukemia, with the latest on imatinib and the newer tyrosine kinase inhibitors. François-Javier Mahn from the University of Bordeaux presented evidence that some patients who have long remissions on imatinib can even now consider stopping it. This followed on from Stephen O'Brien's glowing review of seven-year follow-up data on imatinib from the pioneering IRIS study. I asked him to review the IRIS findings and to put them into context for practical
7: clinicians. IRIS is probably the oldest phase three uh, looking at imatinib-treated patients, and initially it set out to randomize between imatinib 400 milligrams daily versus imatinib plus interferon. But over the years, the vast majority of patients initially allocated to interferon either withdrew from the study or crossed over. So the presentation today was mainly focusing on those 553 patients who initially started out on imatinib. Now, in a nutshell, it it confirms that imatinib is an excellent therapy, but can you give me the numbers, please? Yep, the um, projected cytokine response rate by Kaplan-Meier is 82%. The overall survival uh, rate is about 87%, and after seven years of follow-up, 60% of patients are still on imatinib in the study, um, and 57% of those uh, of all patients are still in complete cytogenetic response. So the data are continuing to look quite good, but there are some patients who, after many years, either can't tolerate the drug or we've lost their response.
0: Well, can you tell me about these patients? Which patients are they? Because they're obviously they're going to be candidates for other TKIs, for example.
7: Yeah, I think one of the key issues is the achievement of a complete cytogenetic response and what that means in the long term. And the analysis we've done for this presentation has shed some new light on that. So um, there are some patients who achieve a complete cytogenic response and yet still either lose that response or additionally go into advanced phase disease, accelerated phase or blast crisis. But it's a minority, it's something like 3%. It also seems that if you maintain your CCR for, say, three years, the chance of progressing at that point is essentially zero. So achieving a CCR is, I guess, what we call a safe haven for the majority of patients. But if you've achieved that and sustained it for, say, three years, uh, you're in pretty good shape and the chance of progressing is virtually nil. Do you have any parameters which indicate which successive
0: therapy might be more suitable in those patients who have become refractory to imatinib?
7: Um, long story really, and there's some new data here at ASH. I wasn't really focusing on that today, but there's obviously a couple of new drugs around nilotinib, disatinib, basutinib and so far the data to distinguish particularly nilotinib and disatinib um, are, are not really separating very much um, both in terms of tolerability and in terms of efficacy and cytogenetic response rates They're broadly the same, there's a slightly different profile for each drug, but there's nothing that's clearly emerging as superior in those patients who are failing or intolerant of imatinib. And what proportion of patients can be expected to respond to these other TKIs? Broadly speaking, with the follow-up we have so far for both of the agents, it's something like 50% of patients get a complete cytogenetic response having failed or been intolerant to imatinib. It's of that sort of order. Intriguingly, we were hearing some French results here from
0: François Marne about stopping imatinib and the fact that you actually
7: can. Mm. What did you make of that? I'm fascinated by that. There's probably a bit of a cultural difference, I think, because most of my patients in the UK, when I suggest that, uh, don't want to hand their pills back and want to carry on. And I think that's driven by the fact that they're tolerating the drug well. There are no safety concerns emerging with the long-term follow-up. And it's obviously having good efficacy in them. But it's a recurring question that I think we'll see more and more of. And the French study is very important.
0: What should doctors be taking home from the IRIS study findings
7: with this very high survival rate? I think it's encouraging uh, on two fronts. One is that there's nothing new in year six and seven to cause alarm in terms of safety events. And the second is, particularly in patients who have achieved a complete cytogenetic response, I think we can be very reassured that the vast majority of those patients, especially if you've had that CCR for three years, are doing extremely well with very few of those progressing.
0: What's the residual
7: role of transplant, allo-transplant? We perhaps shouldn't throw it out of the window. I think that's a fair comment. It's still now, I think, reserved as second or possibly third-line therapy in CML. There are very few authorities who would suggesting a transplant up front, even in children, in which, of course, CML is quite rare. So I think it has a place um, in second and possibly third-line, and especially in patients who have particularly bad mutations which cause drug resistance, such as the T315I. Um, and I think that remains probably the key indication for transplantation because there are no really effective drugs which uh, target that particular lesion. Can you
0: spot those patients in advance and then use the treatment up front? Uh,
7: Not necessarily. You can't always detect um, these mutations at low level in newly diagnosed patients. They often only emerge in the context of uh, disease resistance, which is overt either by uh, loss of cytogenetic response or loss of hematological response. So I, I guess the holy grail is to pick up these mutations early and act on them early but our current state of technology is that we are reliant on picking up a certain level of a clone with that mutation which is usually in the face of clinical resistance.
0: Now in the light of the iris study, the the magnificent light as it seems, what is the bottom line for
7: clinicians right now in treating their patients with CML? I think the bottom line is that imatinib 400 remains the current standard first-line drug therapy but we've seen some very exciting data now with nilotinib first line, with desatinib first line, with such response rates you know, in excess of 95, 97%. So I think where we're going for the future is to do comparative phase three studies with the TKIs in newly diagnosed patients to see if we can improve on imatinib because although it's reassuring the imatinib data, it's clear that at six or seven years, perhaps a third of patients are not continuing on imatinib, either because they've lost their response or they're intolerant of it. So imatinib's very good, but I think we can do better. What are the toxicities, though, that you have to deal with on chronic imatinib use? I think the key ones are um, haematological for many patients, neutropenia and thrombocytopenia um, over the years, and also minor toxicities which become more irritating over time. So uh, GI toxicity like diarrhoea for example, uh, muscle cramps can be troublesome for patients over the years, um, and just a feeling of fatigue and malaise sometimes in some patients. So they're usually minor toxicities which after many years become rather wearing rather than major toxicities which are short-lived.
0: Stephen O'Brien from Newcastle University in England, ending this edition of Oncology Times Broadcast News with the Audio Journal of Oncology. Until next time, from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.